welcome to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. Hi, how are you? What's new? How are things? I'm recording this show earlier. As you know, we like to try to put as many shows in the queue as possible, just in case I get pulled off on a job, then you guys don't miss out on your weekly episodes. I know how hungry you are every week for new content. And so right now, Liam and I are going full throttle and recording as many episodes as we can, and we're gonna have a queue stacked up. So side effect of that is, is that I may be behind on current events, or I may start talking about something that hasn't released yet. Um, I'm gonna say is uh, fucking deal with it. Because <laughs> uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, so one of the cool things that I'm very excited about with season three is that we've been getting great directors on the show. Uh, And we've been getting help from folks that love the show. Listeners of the show have been putting us in touch with their uh, favorite uh, people to work with, favorite directors that they work with. And so those of you who have been hooking us up, you know who you are. Here's a wink for you. Thanks, man. Thank you for hooking us up. And today's episode uh, was definitely a hookup. Very excited to talk to these two directors. Another set of co-directors that we're having on the show. Um, these guys have been at it for a long time. They have been, they started in the world of design, uh, and then they moved to, uh, shooting, uh, commercials and they've done some amazing commercials for big brands. Let's see. Let's take a look. Let's see. Clients include Visa, right? Crayola, big client. Uh, they did stuff for Oreo. They've done stuff for Target. Comcast, like these guys are doing, have been doing big ads and their ads are gorgeous. You can tell they come from a design background. Their ads are vibrant and their ads are fun and funny. Um, But the real reason why I was interested in these cats uh, is because they've done some pretty awesome uh, independent feature films. So maybe you've heard of them. How about a film called Cooties, right? A SpectraVision film. Um, which is starring like the cast is insane on this movie. I, you know, I, I, I've already recorded the episode. I didn't even asked them how they got all, all the, the cast involved with this. So Elijah Wood's in it, Rain Wilson's in it, Allison Pill's in it. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And it looks like a really fun movie. I haven't seen Cooties yet, but it's on my list this week. They did a film that I do love and that I did see called Bushwick. Have you guys seen this one? It's like a pre-post-apocalyptic, world's kind of going to shit. Um, Dave Bautista is running around Brooklyn. Uh, And the movie was really smartly put together. It was a series of long takes all sort of strung together. And these guys were able to do an action film that normally would require two, three, four times the budget um, on an independent level with really smart planning. And they talk about it on this episode. Um, and they just released their new film, Becky, which is now a cult classic, um, with some with a fascinating cast. Uh, Joel McHale's in it. Kevin James is cast in it, and he's in such a fucking really uh, strange role for him. And he looks like he's phenomenal in it. And then, of course, the amazing Lulu Wilson is also in it as well. So if you've seen these movies then you know who I'm talking about, right? You know that I'm talking about the director duo, Carrie and John. So they're both on the show today. 
Uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of new stuff. Uh, I want to talk to them about what it's like because a lot of their films have premiered at major festivals. They had like a big time Sundance premiere for Bushwick. I know they had a big time festival premiere for Cooties. And then Becky was just premiered at the Tribeca 2020 festival, which I don't know necessarily how that worked because it wasn't Tribeca canceled because of COVID. Uh, so it's fascinating stuff. We get into that. We get into their processes, how they work together as co-directors. We get into the process of uh, how they plan their movies and how they stay sane. So it's a really great directing episode. If you guys listen to this podcast because you want to learn more on how to be a better director, this is a great show for you guys. Very excited to have them on. And I'm very excited to have you guys continuously listening to the show. And those of you who continue to follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or follow the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod, that's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram, uh, you guys have been fucking awesome. I've been getting comments from you guys. I've been getting reviews from you guys. And I try to repost and publish everything you send me. So if you got any questions, if you got stuff that you want to talk about, if you've got guests that you wish I can get on this show, write to me on Instagram. At Mike Petchy is the best way to get to me. Um, and I will say this too. Those of you who missed out on buying my limited edition t-shirts, I still have a little collection of them kicking around. I've got some sizes left. So if you really wish you got your hands on an ILWP t-shirt, drop me a note and there'll be a couple ways you can do it. Um, also, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. For those newcomers to the show, and I know that it can be awfully daunting to look at the, the fucking episode list on Apple Podcasts, and you're like, man, there's like 100 and whatever the fuck episodes of this. Where do I start? Well, you could be like a true comic book reader and go start at issue one and make your way through, but I know a lot of you need to be excited the whole time you're like but those are older episodes like what is the good stuff what is the stuff that's going to get me hooked okay go to inlovewiththeprocess.com there we have our top 20 episodes it's a great way to get into the show and episode one's on the list there so you could start at episode one and then honestly there's a bit of continuity as far as like my attitude <laughs> is concerned but you know you can jump around so like if you just want to listen to episodes with directors, we have all the director episodes curated. If you want to listen to the chef's episodes, if you want to listen to the musician episodes, they're all there. It's a great place to go. And honestly, while you're listening to the show, it's a great spot to be, uh, to check out the materials that we often reference on the episode. So I'll be sure to post trailers up there. I'll be able to be sure to post clips, things that we talk about on inlovewiththeprocess.com. So it's a good resource. So go there, check it out, sign up for our newsletter. You might get some shit for that, by the way. So without further ado, let's not drag this out. Grab your noise-canceling headphones and uh, get ready to go on a ride with a room full of directors as we tell you what to expect as you've decided to Turn your back on that nine to five job and you've decided to pursue your dreams. Hopefully, we'll give you what you need in the new episode of A Love of the Process.
So good morning, guys. Thanks for joining me on the show. Happy to be Thanks here. Thanks for having us. Uh, like I briefly said before we started rolling, I'm a big fan of your stuff. Um, I was a big fan of Bushwick. Um, and uh, I haven't seen Becky yet. I'm pumped about Becky because I think that, uh, the, if anything, the casting that you guys did that piece is mm-hmm. fascinating to me. So I'm really excited. Yeah, well, um, one of the cool things about making movies is we've, we've been doing this kind of press circuit and um, discovering a lot of cool new podcasts. And um, sadly, we hadn't heard of yours before, but looking through your uh, back catalog, it's, it's pretty, pretty, some lots of really cool stuff. So um, I'm definitely adding uh, it to my, um, my list. But I, I'm looking, I don't even know how I got to this one page, but at the top, there's designing spaceships with uh, the Star Wars guy. Um, Coley, Coley Warts. Yeah. Coley Warts, which just looks awesome. I can't wait to listen to that. But then right next to it, it says discovering cat's butthole. So <laughs> I don't know what that is. and I, You don't have to explain, but I'm very excited to listen to that one. I know, too. What, that oh, good. I know what that is. That's the whole erasing of the butthole for the movie Cats. There's a whole cut of that. Oh, right? that's, is that no, what it is? No, I wish it was, fellas. It wasn't so, that? So, so what it is is I was I'm a big fan of like um, like '90s uh, anime, so like Japanese animation, oh. like Ghost in the Shell, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I met a fellow nerd. Um, uh, it's Sean, I think, who uh, works for Adult Swim, and he's an animator. So he does like oh, all wow. of Adult Swim's tags. You know, all like those really crazy, cool, oh, sort of man. trippy. Um, tags and stuff, and he has this one. He has this one animation that I saw on Instagram that is essentially cats marching and then showing their buttholes. Ah. <laughs> so, so we titled the episode "Against the Wishes of One of My Producers." I'm like, we're calling it the Cat's Butthole. <laughs> that's what we're doing. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. That draws me right in. <laughs> oh. We won't so, delve into why that does for you, John. <laughs> <laughs> you have to see. I don't know if the animation's on that page. It might be, but you have to see the animation of these like prissy little cats just marching in front of the camera and then showing their buttholes. It's pretty fun, dude. <laughs> uh, it's so awesome. Um, well, that's like when we Carrie and I started off as designers, and that was like one of our little little secrets was trying to. Um, you know, sneak in like penises and, and, uh, or just kind of phallic symbols in, you know, the midst of like a, like a banking website design or something. Um, you know, the stupid crap that, uh, board designers do. I love how you include me in that, John. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. me and Carrie. <laughs> sure, Carrie, you're, you're so high and mighty. <laughs> you don't want to be alone with a statement like that. So I totally understand. You know, granted, we were younger then. We're much wiser and we would never do anything well, so obscene now. I, I, don't, I don't believe that for a fucking second. Just right now. Um, it's, it's good to be children. Like, I'm still a kid, man. It's funny. I'm a, like a 42-year-old, uh, 12-year-old. And that's what I like to say to folks. Um, oh yeah, Definitely. like it's it's why do this shit if it's not fun? Because it takes fucking forever to get these things done. So you should yeah. have a good time while you're doing it. You know, yeah, Definitely. always have fun. Yeah. Sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you guys because uh, that's why you're here. And uh, I want to catch up the audience if they don't know. Um, so you guys have been uh, doing feature films for a while now, and then you guys also do a lot of commercial work. And you said you started as designers. Like, how did you guys get into the business? Yeah, we um, we actually met at uh, Parsons School of Design, um, and right out of school, we, we had we had kind of collaborated on some zines and some things in school. Uh, then right out of school, we kind of started our own company, 
Uh, and from there, we were doing animations like the um, the cat's butthole type of things for um, <laughs> for all kinds of different uh, outlets. You know, a lot of flash. There was flash animation back then, um, which I just saw like some uh, warning on my Chrome that flash is being discontinued, mm-hmm. um, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, so we were doing animations and just kind of having fun, like like you're saying, you know, um, making sure to keep doing experiments and and being playful in addition to trying to, you know, have as much fun with the client work as possible. Um, but that led to us doing um, some live action stuff. Uh, brands like Nike were trying to get um, branded content is what they called it back then, yeah. which was videos online before YouTube and Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. Um, so they would ask us to, to do short films um, just as long as they kind of uh, somehow incorporated their product <laughs> and usually had something to do with some sort of um, uh, campaign or, or something like, for instance, speed. You know, Nike would say, do something about speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of like where we got our start was, was doing things like that. It, look, I came sort of came from the same roots for – about 10 years, I was running a production company, too, back on the East Coast in Boston, and we were doing the same thing, like the, uh, um, what did they call the the camp? Like, you just said it. My brain is freezing off this morning. Yeah, branded branded content. content. Thank you. So we used to do branded content for, like, UFC and that those those kind of things. And we did a lot of, like, mini ducks, and that was a big thing, minute, mm-hmm. miniature mm-hmm. documentaries. Yeah. But they were all ad campaigns, pretty much. Um, and so... Uh, do you guys notice, because I think it's really funny looking at your website and how how uh, vivid and bright and poppy a lot of your commercial stuff is, <laughs> and, then and then your movies are kind of the opposite, which yeah. I think is really funny. Um, is it, what has always been the, the main motivation for you guys as far as storytelling is concerned? Has it been to ultimately make films and that all these things have been sort of the steps along the way, or how did you get to the part? Point where you're like, let's make feature films. Um, yeah, well, I think it was definitely. I think anybody that dabbles in in moving pictures in any way wants to make a movie at some point. We've just been influenced by and watching movies since we were kids. Um, so that was kind of our our in was initially the animation, um, and then when we, like I said, when we got the chance, we just kind of branched out and started you know, taking any opportunity we could. Um, but it was, you know, so from those, those, those branded content, we did get a chance to do a short film, um, which was going to play before for movies. Um, it was actually a really cool idea was, you know, the, it's kind of like what Pixar does with their, they do a little short and then you see the movie. And mm-hmm. this company had this idea that they were going to start showing shorts before movies and kind of go back to the way, I guess it used to be like that. Um, and so we got some money to do a short and it could be rated R. So that was di- very different from, um, any commercial we had done. Um, so Carrie came up with this idea for uh, a short film called boob, which was, um, <laughs> if, uh, if, uh, a breast implant, a, le- a futuristic electronic breast implant, um, uh, short circuits and comes alive and, uh, uh, kind of terrorizes a, a hospital. Um, but it was, it was that kind of direct, um, result of that we could do something rated R and ex- exactly like you're saying, the opposite of the bright kind of, um, positive commercial message. It was like, let's do something just 
buck wild crazy. Um, but I think in the end, it, the, the, the answer to your question is, yeah, we just love telling stories. I think we do have a, um, uh, a love for just kind of offbeat, kind of weird, crazy, um, not traditional um, things. So um, I think that comes through in, in the work that we do that's not necessarily commercial. Um, mm-hmm. The commercial work tends to come from the idea that we have like a sense of humor, I think, that comes through in our other work. Um, so that's more easy to see the, the sense of humor in a more um, broad kind of commercial world. Right. Because, you know, I've been repped for as a commercial director, too, and they try to find the, the, the simplest and easiest way to package you and sell you to the clients. And it makes sense that they would. It's, and I can see why you guys would be very successful in the commercial realm, too, because humor and comedy really, really sells. And those end up being the larger um, ad campaigns. You guys get access to a lot of that stuff if you have that on your reel. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you, you probably know and everybody in, in, the, in any kind of creative industry knows is that you, you really get pigeonholed because it is all about how they market you. And there's mm-hmm. so much competition that uh, we, when we first started, we did doc stuff. We did kind of more visual stuff. We did animation and, and, and it was just a mess. It was like, well, what do those guys do? Well, let's go to the animation guy because we want animation. Let's go to the comedy guy because we want comedy. So then we just kind of started narrowing it down and it becomes more easy to sell yourself when you are just the comedy guys or, you know, for us now, uh, we're a little bit pigeonhole in the film world as like the genre guys. Um, because we, you know, we started off with, um, a a horror comedy, uh, and then we tried to purposely do something a bit different with our second film Bushwick, but it's still considered in genre. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think, we are still able to dictate our next project and, you know, we get to read scripts and develop prod, prod, projects that are different than genre, but it's still like the main types of scripts that we get in from our agents are genre horror and things <laughs> that are more related to, to projects that we've done in the past. Yeah. I mean, that, make, that makes sense. It makes sense on a sales pitch thing, but as an artist, it, it kind of gets frustrated because I, very similar Hello? scenarios with me where our stuff that I used to do was pretty dark or I would do like real slice of life sort of dark stuff and you find yourself really pigeonholed in that and for years prior to that we were doing like metal music videos and hip-hop music videos and so like everybody's like oh you're the fucking metal guy and I'm like okay <laughs> so that ends up being the t-shirt that you have to wear for quite some time um, and it takes a lot of effort and I found that the only way to break out of that box was to actually either self-finance or put my neck on the line and do something in that other genre on my own to prove myself. And then it, it's like people don't have either the patience or they don't necessarily need to uh, have faith that you can do something different because there's so much competition out there. Like you said, they can just essentially walk down the halls of the the Walmart for fucking film directors and movie directors <laughs> and go, here's a guy that not only does comedy, but he does comedy with red shoes. And uh, mm-hmm. we have red mm-hmm. shoes that we want to sell. You know what I mean? So it's pretty difficult uh, to yep. be multi. Yeah, you, just, you just have to, you have to have a, what we've seen is that you have to have a, um, if you're not going to be pigeonholed in, in um, a certain kind of, I guess genre, you just have to have great ideas. And I think those are, those are the things that can break out and can make, get you into different ways of working. Um, so it's, I think you can start one way, but you have to keep on pushing yourself to just um, have different ways of looking at some things. And mm. 
that's what will get you where you want to go. Yeah, it's fascinating because I've, I've talked to a bunch of other directors on the show about that sort of thing. And it, you hit this point where you start and you're, it seems like you're kind of trying to feel it out and try to figure out what you're good at. And then you find something that you're that at that point in your life you're really good at. And then people are like, you have to lean into it, lean into mm-hmm. the thing that you're great at. Um, and then you do so and you just refine that thing. And then the next thing you know, you're trapped in it. So it's yeah. Yeah. it's this weird fucking game, weird balance that you really can't. You can't get comfortable. You know what I mean? I mean, I think it's always like that thing of it's always greener because you hear about these directors or even actors or who, who have been doing prestige work their whole life. And then they're like, well, I just want to do a horror film, but I, I'm not known for that. So <laughs> I think it's we all, most people want to do different things. It's hard to do that. There's the rare people that can really jump between uh, various different types of, of work. Um, and we all just strive to do that. And it's... Um, but as long as we, as long as we're happy and doing things that um, I think keep on, like for us, our last three films, as John said, our genre, each one are a little bit tweaked. You know, again, the first one had was you know very much a comedy. The second one, there was very little comedy in it and had more action and and wartime kind of uh, feel to it. And then Becky was like a kind of combination of both of those films and then something else new. So we're like, as long as you, I think at least for us, we don't st- think we're doing repeating the exact same thing and like doing new things and, and uh, learning new things. Then I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's what kind of makes us creatively uh, inspired to keep going. Now I'm fascinated about how you guys get, uh, get your movie started. So with cooties, like, was that something that was independently financed? Did you guys finance, finance that stuff? Like, how'd you get your first one go- running? Uh, that was based on that, that short film that John mentioned. Um, uh, Spectre Vision, which is Elijah Wood's company, had seen that short film, and because that sh- the short film we did was a horror comedy, and Cooties was a horror comedy, um, they asked us to come pitch on it. So we we did we went and uh, we pitched on it, and a kind of a good story for people to hear is that um, we pitched on it, we lost to another director. <laughs> um, <laughs> they worked with another director for about six months, um, and you know, we stayed in touch with the producers and said, you know, hey, you know. We- not to try to win it back, but just like, cause we love the idea. We said, um, you know, we just love to, you know, how's that project going? You know, is it, is it going along well? And they would, you know, say, yes, it's going along and they would keep, keep, keep us up to date. And then, um, about six months after we lost it, they called us up and said, Hey, uh, would you guys still want to direct that, that movie? <laughs> and we're like, wait, what's going on? And they said, well, we're just having some issues and with the director and that we hired and uh, if you guys still want to do it we'd love to get you back on and so we said yes they got off the phone a half hour later they called us back and said can you guys come out to LA because um, you guys are, are on it and we had to come out to LA and we had to pitch around like we had to like actually talk to the, um, the financiers and um, and kind of like assure people that we're the right people but yeah it was kind of this crazy story how we got on it and, and was that, and, was and that just, to, just to back up a, a touch more, the, the funny thing completely relating to everything we've been talking about is how specific the, that boob was this very weird, specific type of horror comedy that was even without us knowing it when we did it was it's kind of this w- rare thing, or at least at the time, was to have this kind of really kind of gory um, movie, uh, you know, film that's in that kind of way. So that's why it's so perfectly, you know, fed into 
them thinking we were right for cooties, you know, which is the exact same thing as what we're, you know, all this pigeonholing and everything, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, it really worked for us to get us to, to pitch cooties because no one else had been doing it. So I think that's also something that's interesting if you're going to be doing a short film um, is, you know, really try to find some genre or something that no one else is really doing because then you'll just stand out that much more. Not that we had any type of um, insight back then when we did it. <laughs> I know, like hindsight's twenty twenty with that sort of thing. And then with with Cootie, so you guys hadn't done a feature before that. You guys were just pretty much in the shorts medium, and then that was your first foray? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the only other, the, the kind of weird thing was that we were we had the idea for Bushwick before Cooties, um, and we'd actually um, got in contact with a, a great um, production company called XYZ Films, and mm-hmm. we had been working on the kind of idea for, for Bushwick. We actually were, were about to uh, film kind of a sample scene for Bushwick because Bushwick is made up of these uh, long, continuous takes and so we were about to film uh, kind of a sample scene for that. And then Cooties and then the guys from Spectavision contacted us. So we we then went and did Cooties and then came back to Bushwick afterwards. So we hadn't done a feature before Cooties, but we had actually been thinking about features and trying to make that happen for a while. Um, so it was nice that we had something that we already been developing that we could go right into after Cooties and not have to wait too long afterwards. Well, it's nice to hear because, you know, full transparency on my end. So I, you know, and I, I can't give too many details away on air, but I'm, I have two uh, shorts that were proof of concepts that are in development right now. And so um, half the time I wish, I said this uh, on yesterday's episode that I recorded, I almost wish that I had done the 30 minute short for 12 km is a feature because it would have made my life a hell of a lot easier because like that jump from being a short a short filmmaker to a feature filmmaker is really difficult you know what i mean did you guys feel that way or no um it was definitely a learning curve i think um one of the memories that we have of cooties and the first few days on set was um we just hadn't worked with actors of that caliber um, especially an ensemble cast of, you know, eight highly respected people in their field. So <laughs> to be just thrown on set to, um, you know, directing a, a, a big scene with a lot of in, just necessitating coverage. You know, when you have eight people in a room, you have to film them all. And, you know, that's a lot different than um, shorts or commercials where you very rarely have that many people talking to each other for an extended period of time. Yeah. Um, so um, I think the general concepts and, um, you know, the experience of us being on set with all the, with over 10 years of doing commercials and shorts um, played dividends in, in the sense that we knew what we were doing on set, but it was still a bit of a learning curve, just, you know, making sure you have everything you're going to need to edit um, later on. Yeah, and I could see I could see how that would be useful. And I guess my question was more about um, just convincing people to finance a feature uh-huh. when you were just a shorts director or a commercial director. Because I find that I'll walk into rooms and, dude, I've got like 19 years of music video and commercial experience and people are just like, yeah, but what have you done? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, okay, so none of that matters? Okay, so yeah, all right, right. right. Yeah, it, it's always a chicken and egg thing. I mean, it's like, how, how do you get a feature? You have to have directed one, well... You know, it's like, yeah. how do you have to, so yeah, it's, it's that, you know, we, we had that, um, 
you know, that, that chance thing where John said we had this short, which actually was the exact same kind of tone as the other one. But then with Bushwick, we just, we had the script and that was, if you have a script, like a full feature script, and if you can do a pretty, um, you know, kick-ass uh, visual treatment, you at least will, um, you could get like someone to read it. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, getting them to commit to you directing it, you know, that's, that's going to be, that could be tough, but as long as it's, on the low end in terms of budget, um, you know, Bushwick was 3.2 million, um, around and it was, so that's not huge. And we were kind of, we were swinging big with that. So they thought, well, that's a, we're doing an action film for 3.2 million. Uh, that kind of has this cool concept where it's these, these, uh, these long takes put together. They thought that was kind of a cool way to do something. So as long as you have a, you know, a full feature script with a, unique take on it i think i think you might have some sort of chance of getting some interest um, especially if it's in the low budget range totally and and dude bushwork looks like it costs a hell of a lot more than that you guys did a really good job on that um and i've got such a soft spot for that genre of films anyways like the sort of almost post-apocalyptic worlds falling apart i love that kind of thing um and so I, i was really excited to actually catch that film um, so that one was like just under four for you guys. So how, yeah. how long was the shoot on that? That was 18 days. Uh, and it, that helped. So we had about two weeks of uh, rehearsal where we, um, had the main cast, um, and then our DP and camera operator. And we went through the real locations. And so we're able to kind of work out some of the, the way that the whole scene would work out, um, both dialogue and then the, the camera movement. So we had two weeks of rehearsals and then we shot the film over three weeks uh, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of planning beforehand. So we would do these um, these very detailed maps, like overhead maps of how things were going to work out. And then we would kind of run through things in the morning on the day. And then we'd, we'd shoot it and we wouldn't, because there was these long takes, we wouldn't do coverage. So as long as you, we plan things out correctly and um, you know, we get these great actors on board to kind of get things through, then it, it kind of help, actually helps move things quicker than if you had a traditional movie with, you know, if you're covering a scene with traditional coverage. So um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot, yeah, it was a lot of pre-planning to make something like that happen. And, and we plan. said that we, we kind of filmed the we, – we actually filmed it three times. We have like the first time Carrie and I walked through it just ourselves and then this – Next time when we walk through it with the actors in that rehearsal period and then, you know, the, the times on set. But the, the, the thing is, is every time it changed dramatically because um, even in the rehearsal process, the actors aren't going full steam. You don't have the streets locked off. You know, you don't have all the effects and everything. So it, it's always so different. But the, all that planning, um, you know, coming up until the actual shoot was, you know, just so important and, and allowed us to actually film that in, in uh, three weeks. Well, it's also, I think we should also mention that it's like uh, Dave Batista's in that. He's a, he's amazing, man. He's fantastic. And he was such a surprising talent um, to me. Obviously guardians of the galaxy made him massive. And then his, his bit in uh, the new blade runner was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does a really great job in this. How did so? What was the process? Did you guys have to get Batista before the movie uh, got its financing, or did you guys get financing and then go out for casting? It was a little bit of a mix of both. I mean, we had um, we had Universal came on with with XYZ um, based on the concept, 
And then, but then we had to, they, it was, it had to, they wouldn't approve the actual financing until we had cast. So it was nice that we had the backing of a company that, so we could go to an actor and say, look, if you come on board, there's real money there. Um, and so then we talked, um, we talked to Dave and yeah, he wanted to try to do something different and he want this was his first lead role in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and he loved the, the kind of concept and we actually thought he was just so perfect for the role. And we just talked through him, like the, the process of making it. And, um, it was something he's a little bit nervous on to begin, you know, to start off in terms of having to do seven minute takes or 10 minute takes. Um, but then once he said, once he got into it, he actually really enjoyed it because he kind of felt like it was, it wasn't acting as much. Like he felt like it was kind of almost like real life and mm. he really enjoyed the process. And then he, he always tells us this was like his acting school, like with, with this movie, it was his real way to kind of get into a character that he hadn't been able to do before. Um, but yeah, he is phenomenal. And you know, him and him and Brittany's chemistry are just kind of really palpable on screen in terms of the friendship they have. Um, they're best friends right now. He has, he tattooed, she has a, uh, uh, Brittany has a, um, a, a, some that she has this thing called Love is Louder. And it's a, it's a charity she has. And he has that tattooed on his chest. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of like, that's how close of friends they are. And you can really feel that, that kind of chemistry on set with them. It's pretty great. Okay, you know the deal. It is time to thank the men and women that make this show possible. And uh, I'm talking about the sponsors, right? Where would this show be without our sponsors? How would I be able to afford to pay for the countless costs and expenses needed to do a podcast? And I know you might have chuckled a little bit there and you're just like, Mike, what does it cost to run a fucking podcast? doesn't cost anything to run a fucking podcast what do you got you got like a fucking zoom recorder and a microphone on your little desk there and you just push record and then you push stop and then magically it is transported completely edited and polished to the cloud to the ether all you have to do is just speak into a battery powered little microphone and it is just sent directly into my eardrums and I would say to that, uh, you're a naive piece of shit. <laughs> now, man, there's a lot of costs involved with the show, and I couldn't afford it uh, without the help of the sponsors. So, first up, my friends over at Puget Systems. And I say friends because I love these guys. I know each one of them personally, and you can too. This is what I love about Puget. Puget loves their customers. They love to meet the artists and the people that use their systems, and they love to build computers that work specifically for your needs. Can you imagine, where did that go? Where did that philosophy go? Where you would walk into a store or you would even order something online and say, hey, I have this specific need. Can you make something for me in order to pull it off? There's this whole other philosophy where apparently everybody's needs are the fucking same. And all you need to do is buy one of three choices on a website. And one of those three choices will magically do everything you need at the best fucking quality possible. It's bullshit, man. That's just marketing. Truth of the matter is 
every computer needs to be different. It needs to be built specifically for why you're using it. So like if you're looking to build or you're looking to work on After Effects all the time, believe it or not, the hardware that you need for an After Effects machine is older hardware oftentimes. It isn't the newest, greatest graphics card on the market. That doesn't necessarily work as well for that. And you could build yourself a middle of the road machine that does an okay job with After Effects and an okay job recording audio and an okay job uh, in Premiere. But if you're specializing in any of these things, you want a machine that is tweaked to your needs. Now, what you could do is you could build your own PC. You could scour the internet, start reading reviews. Like, is this the right motherboard to work with this RAM? And when I plug this RAM into this motherboard, this thing catches fire. <laughs> I used to build PCs when I was a kid, back in the, the old days of LAN gaming. So anybody over the age of 30, they're high-fiving me right now. Yes. Remember when we used to play LAN games and we have parties where we bring our computers into one place and they called it a LAN because it was technically a local area network where we'd get a router and we'd plug all the computers in together and then we would chase each other through levels of Alien vs. Predator, shooting our friends' faces off and drinking cases and cases of Mountain Dew. Do you remember that shit? Well, that's where I learned to build PCs and I also learned at that point in time that if I ever had a company that required editors to be using PCs, I'm not going to build them because I would spend all of my time being customer support. And that's not what I wanted. So I hunted for a company that had fantastic customer support, that had great prices, and that gave a shit. And that's how I found Puget Systems. Go to PugetSystems.com, build a machine based upon the software you use. Build a machine based upon the needs you use. They will offer up baseline packages that, here's the deal, then can be customized any way you need it. And these guys don't manufacture hardware. They don't build hardware. That's what makes them so great. So they're always on the market looking for competitive deals. They're always beta testing and benchmark testing all of their equipment and gear that they put inside their computers. So you're always getting the newest and latest and greatest thing. And that's important, especially during this crazy fucking time of subscription services. It's so hard for me not to rant when I say these things, but when did we decide that it's okay to subscribe to a service and pay a bill every month to listen to the same fucking album, right? Or how about when we subscribe to edit software where every other week or every month they release a new software update that seems to render our hardware useless? It's insanity. And what I love about Puget Systems is they work closely with all these software companies and they understand what these changes are and they understand what sort of update your machines need, how to be compatible with this stuff. They're a great resource. Bottom line, go to PugetSystems.com, check them out. If you're someone that's looking to buy a new computer, if you're someone that's struggling with your current computer, uh, it's a fucking really perfect place to go and learn about computers. So go to PugetSystems.com. Also on the show, supporting us as always, are my good buddies over at Quasar Science. Quasar make Quasar Science makes amazing LED lighting units. And that's one of the coolest advancements in the movie business has been lighting. Have you noticed this? Have you tuned in to Netflix and been like, 
why do these things look so fucking good? And do you work in the business and go, how the hell do they make these things look like that on their time schedules? A lot of it has to do with LED lighting. LED lighting changes the game because you don't need big units anymore. You don't need these massive units that draw a ton of power, right? And how does that power help? How, how, Gene is in the background. What was that? Trying to do work. Sorry, I was, uh, unintentionally bothered you. Oh, that's cool. What was that noise? It was me at my desk. What are your noises? You at your desk? I'm at my desk right now. Huh? Just recording. Just recording the uh, the sponsor reads for the show. Huh? I'm just trying to get through it. You know, I've got probably about five more minutes of recording, and then you can do all the work that you need to do for the next four weeks. <laughs> uh, where the fuck was I? Oh, okay, yeah. So anyway, Quasar Science makes amazing LED units. And like I said, uh, they don't require a lot of power. They're incredibly well balanced for daylight and tungsten. And you can get their rainbow LED units where you can actually dial in any color of any gel that you can find. Uh, really cool stuff, really amazing technology. Uh, I, I have a lot of people asking me all the time, Mike, what do you use for lights? Quasar Science, Quasar Tubes. I've got a couple of rainbow LEDs that are in my kit. So if you're looking for some new stuff, if you're looking to change the way your images look, go to quasarscience.com. Um, I've given them a shout out before and I'm going to do it again. If you guys haven't listened to the show yet, and let me stop for a second here. I'm actually giving a shout out to a competitor. Okay. And I'm doing so because I love him. I think his show is fantastic and I think he's a great filmmaker. And I'm talking about Ryan Conley and I'm talking about his show Film Riot. Now, if you guys haven't listened to Film Riot yet, go to filmriot.com, check it out. Not only does he have a great podcast, but he also does amazing uh, YouTube content. He teaches you how he does things. He actually makes films and then walks you through how he made those films. It is a great place. Ryan does it right. He's a cool cat. And I always love to plug people who do things right. So like I said, go check out Film Riot if you haven't already. Great stuff. Good dude. Good entertainment. Solid entertainment. And if you want to support us, do me a favor and go to lovetheprocess.com. There you can donate to the show. One of the best ways that you can give us cash without reaching into your own pocket is by signing up for an Audible free trial. Now, if you haven't done so already on another podcast, click the link below this episode, sign up for Audible, I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. You would think at this point that I would learn the URL, but I think I'm just stubborn. I just don't want to learn it. It's below the episode, so click below. It's not like you're going to fucking type it out when I say it to you on the show anyway, right? So click the link, sign up for a free trial, you get 30 days for free. With that trial, you get a free audiobook. You get access to all of their content. So they have a bunch of really great free content on there when you're a member, um, which is really cool. And it's a good place to bone up on those skills that you're looking to, to learn. Like you want to learn more about how actors find their motivation on set. There are great books on Audible for that. If you want to learn more about structuring a film, great books on that. Screenwriting, great books on that too. If you just want to read about aliens that descend on the planet and take over the entire species, I'm sure you'll find a really good book on that one too. 
So go to audibletrial.com, link is below. Sign up using our link and we will get paid. And then if you realize that you don't have the cash to continue after the trial, cancel. We still get paid. doesn't matter. But I know you're going to want to stick with it. So easiest way to get us money on the show. But if you're listening and you're like, Mike, I've already done the Audible and I really love you and I'd love to give you some cash. There's a donate button on inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors. There's a donate button where you can donate anything to us. And there are other deals that we have with other companies there as well. Any deals that we post there, know right away that we're going to get paid if you just click through and do it. So that's how it works. All right. So let's get right back into it. And this is a really good conversation with these guys. So stick around. I was just talking to other directors about it the other day. Um, do you guys find that when you're, at least uh, I do, when I'm editing cast, like when I have someone in my edit room and I'm staring at them and I'm spending like thousands and thousands of hours looking at their faces, understanding understanding what moles they should call the doctor for, you know what I mean? Because you're examining every inch of them. And afterwards, I feel like they're my babies almost. I feel like they're my kids. You know what I mean? And so anytime I see those actors, uh, I, I just want to go over and hug them and go, how's life? What's happening? How's things? You know what I mean? Do you guys feel that personal connection when you're cutting people? Yes. But yeah, with these kind of movies too, and it's this, um, there's so much, you know, these are still low budget movies in terms of the, uh, compared to again, Guardians of the Galaxy or Just Perfect for, with Britney. So with these kind of movies, it is a lot of, um, um, of your own personal effort put into it. And it's, it's, you know, this, we had, we had trailers for them, but it was things that were not even close to what they're used to. So we all have to put in extra effort. And so after an experience like that, you really do feel like family. And so we love to stay in touch with them and we have these kind of great relationships with them. I think that's what's great about indie movies like this is you have that experience that, that doesn't just fade away afterwards. It kind of keeps on going for sure. Yeah. And there's so much fun. I mean, you know, the being on larger sets and being on because you guys are on commercial sets all the time and I'm sure you deal with the uh video village nightmare that happens on on off on those things often where you're dealing with how many different yeah. people from creative like oh, yeah. the, the positions that are listed and then folks that have to say certain things in order to validate that, you mm-hmm. know, salary. Um, to, uh, I've been on a few sets that are larger productions and, and you started to see some of those figures on like studio movies where you're like, what are you doing here and what's going on with this? Um, so independent stuff is always so much fun because it seems like people are usually taking a pay cut. People are usually, uh, like you said, pulling in their own personal life, pulling in their own resources to make something like this happen. And those sets tend to just be the sets that you remember forever. Those are the ones that... I know on my films that I fucking, I'm just so happy that I took the moments when I was there to actually look around and see it and like observe how fucking wonderful it was. Cause those memories stay with me always, you know? Yeah. And th- that passion is there. And I feel like when you talk with directors who are successful in bigger productions, they always say that they take what they learned from these indie, indie kind of experiences and bring it to the big sets. I mean, I was listening to, um, a podcast with the uh, with Rachel Morrison, who um, she was a DP on uh, on Black Panther, mm-hmm. and she said that that felt like an indie movie. I mean, they had done Fruitvale Station 
um, together. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so, and she said that going to Black Panther, yes, they had more resources, but they still made it feel like an indie movie. And that's like a, you know, that's something that I think the, the directors who do move up and do, do bigger things, they try to keep that, um, that passion and, and intimacy with their whole, the whole production to make it feel that way because you don't want to make it feel like it's just a cookie cutter thing. You want to have a unique vision on things. And um, so I think that's what we all want to do, no matter how big or small is like keep that, that passion and that unique vision and, and connection to everything as you go. Totally. I mean, that's kind of why I created this show. I mean, the, the, the show ultimately was made um, because I hit a point in my life where um, yeah, I've told the story a hundred times on the show, but I almost died. I got in, I stepped on the ice one day. I went ice skating with my current girlfriend now uh, and uh, stepped out on the ice and slipped backwards and cracked my skull. So I ended up, I, I, I had a hematoma. I was in intensive care for five days and then I had to recover took five months for recovery. And in that period of time, you're facing death. Like, you know, the doctor comes in and he's like, we can't let you go back to sleep. You might not wake up, call your family. And so when you're in that mode, it wasn't like a come to Jesus moment for me. I didn't see the light. I didn't see any of that. It was more like I just sort of took a tally, you know, where it's like, okay, so if everything goes out, if the lights go out, then has everything been good, you know? And I sort of go back and it's like, okay, so I've done this. I've had a pretty good career and I've got a good family, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I never made a fucking feature. So if I get out of this, I got to do that. Um, But then as I was looking back at stuff, I was noticing that, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, that because I've been so obsessed with this business since I was 22, Uh um, that there were huge periods of my life that were just postmarked by like little flagpoles where it was like, that's when I made that movie. And that's when I did that commercial. And that's when I did this. And then you look at this map with all these little flagpoles on it. And you're like, there aren't, there aren't a lot of flagpoles there. Like what happened in between this and this? Yeah. And I can't remember what happened here. And so after that, I realized, I'm like, man, it's all about, because I spend probably 2% of my life doing what I want to do, which is directing on set. And the rest of the time is all this other shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like prep and concepting and selling and all this stuff. And so I realized that's what my life is. That's what my job is, is all these other things. And so I have to find a way to appreciate that. I have to find a way to fall in love with the process, fall in love with all the different steps involved. Um, And then once that happens, that sort of changes my work, changes my personality on set. It really changes the reason why I put projects together now. So I'll talk to producers and say, look, I want to make a great movie and this is going to be really great too, but I also want this experience. I want to bring these people in and have this experience and I want us to experience this thing together because I've been there. So when you're laying on that fucking deathbed and you're, you're doing the tally, there's more than just the fucking pillars. You know, there's the stuff in between that's important. Does that yeah, make you sense? Yeah, you have to really start to love the process. And I think because we all know that, you know, movies, there's, it, there's so many moving pieces to how they're made and how they come out that it's not, you can't be um, just waiting for that one moment where it comes out in the, at, you know, on screen and get that. And like, that can't be the thing you're doing it for. You have to love the creation of, of something that, and working with people to make that happen and all the different steps in between, because it is a long process. You, you spend years doing it and it, you know, we've, we've been on things that, you know, Bushwick took us many, many years to do and, um, it's something, and Becky, something that kind of, you know, that came together even over two and a half years. And so that was something that, 
just have to like that that development of something um, because it's it's uh, it's not going to be as rewarding if you're just waiting for that one moment when it's all finished. And, and I think the, the the funny thing with that, with I think people like us who are creative, artistic, and um, in some ways, at least for me, I, I almost liked, you know, just sitting around drawing and, and, and being by myself. And the idea of having to sell, I never wanted to be like a salesman or a businessman <laughs> or anything like that. And that's exactly what you have to be to be in the creative world today and, and make a living at it at least. is And so I think the quicker I, anybody who's in this world that kind of feel, felt the way I did growing up, you know, if, if I had realized that I should just, you know, sit back and figure out a way to appreciate the, the, sale, the selling part, you know, okay, I, I've got this idea. Now I have to sell it. We've got this script. Now we got to sell it you know, you got to make the money to, to make your thing. So, it, you know, th- there's just a, a lot that you have to do that you don't like, but mm-hmm. like you're saying, there's a lot you can do to make it. So you like those things. Um, it's just a mental shift. Um, so I think Carrie and I, you know, we're pitching almost every day, whether it's with commercials or, um, feature films. So we've gotten, I think better at it over the years, but I think the most important thing is just not getting stressed out about it, not um, you know pretending like or feeling like your life depends on it. Because <laughs> what we've realized is that out of maybe a hundred pitches, we've won three. You know, I mean, it's probably been even more than that. But the idea that you're just going to do it, you're going to do the best you can. Hopefully, you'll meet some cool people, like with Cooties. You never know. Maybe it will come back around at some point. Um, the more people you know in this industry, the better you are, you know, better off you are. And, you know, it's just, yeah, just find those nuggets of um, fun in, in the pain. Well, you bring up good points. And I think, you know, those, because a lot of the folks listen to the show, younger filmmakers, and I get these questions all the time. And it's a fascinating it's a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. At, at the end of the day, at least for me, in the beginning, it was like, I got to fucking do it. You know, that was always it. It was like, I got to fucking do this. I'm going to make this. I'm going to do that. And you end up having to form tunnel vision to sort of get through your insecurities, get through a um, hundred or a thousand different reasons why you're not supposed to do this thing and push towards that goal. And I think early on when I was a kid learning how to do this stuff, that was essential. Like I had to get rid of all the other distractions. I had to be pinpointed and pushed towards that goal. And then you hit a point where you then have to sell yourself. And I always say it takes like eight years before anybody gives a shit about you. Like before you get a phone call, before anything happens, it takes that amount of time. And then when you hit that point where people are starting to look at your work and then you have to become a marketer and you have to be a salesperson... You got to remember that this shit takes forever sometimes. Like movies, mm-hmm. like, like look how long it took George Miller to make a Fury Road. That was what, 10 years, 10 plus yeah. years? Yeah. It's 10 years, man. Like think about it. If you're listening now and you're 25 years old, he didn't make it until he's 35. <laughs> That's an yeah. eternity, you know? And so if you're so hyper-focused on that one thing, which you have to be, this is what sucks about it, is that you have mm-hmm. to be 100% in anytime you go do a pitch. Yeah. But you also can't be 100% in with your heart because your heart's just going to continuously get broken and then eventually you'll get jaded 
and eventually it'll start to affect how you do your pitches and whether or not you're putting it all into a treatment. Why should I write on this fucking thing when I know I'm not going to get it? You know what I mean? Do you guys feel the same way? Yeah, and it is. It's such a, a, a crazy balancing act because you, you put it exactly right. It's like you, you, you actually do have to put your heart totally into it. Otherwise, it's pretty transparent. But at the same time, you got to um, you just got to be you. I, the way I do it is I put my heart into it. But then the minute it's over, it's it's, you know, uh, I don't know. It's like a good party. You just got to kind of move on and <laughs> have the good memories and, and hope for the best. Um, but you can't you I don't know. You can't stay. Um, can't uh, dwell somehow, on. Yeah, you can't dwell on it. You can't you can't put so much. um value into winning or losing if you win it's like great okay next stage if you lose okay let's find something else because you know we're creative creative and even if we did get this you know there would be something next um that's one thing that we found is that um you know we we thought we were at we got cooties done we were at sundance and we're like okay you know send us those marvel scripts and star wars and (laughs) here it comes and it's like no we got a bunch of meetings and um but really, it wasn't just like you make a feature and you're set in the industry. We're still, you know, always brewing multiple projects now. Um, and I think that was uh, kind of a lesson that I should have taken from when I used to do more painting and fine art was that if you just did one painting, you're so screwed when that one's done because then you got to kind of like get inspiration for the next one and, and get that motivation going. It's like have a bunch of paintings going at all times. You know, maybe you focus on one a little bit more, uh, uh, but then, you know, it's just a, it just seems to be the better way to, to keep things going is, um, you know, we, we have a ton of things brewing. If one takes off, then you really focus on that. If you know others fail, you have other ones to to kind of support your creativity. Yeah, it's smart. It's smart because, and in this period of time where it takes for stuff to get approved or it takes for stuff to pick up, if you are filling your time with as many ideas as you possibly can, then you have that stockpile. And there's something that feels very comforting about having a stockpile of ideas that are behind you that you know are really great, um, because. You know, like you said, you guys make your first film and then it doesn't happen that way. And, you know, I th- I've just noticed because it was that whole period of time because you guys are repped, right? You guys are uh, repped by UTA, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So am I. So before before being repped, I, I was convinced. I'm like, I just need a fucking agent. I need a fucking mm-hmm. agent. I need a manager. I need this shit. It's going to make everything happen. It's going to make it all work. And it's because these these steps are so mythological to us. You know what I mean? As young filmmakers, because a lot of people don't talk about it. A lot of people don't get into the details of it. And so you're like, okay, so these guys are getting these jobs because they have an agent. These guys are getting this stuff. And so if I get that, then it's going to change my whole fucking world. And then finally getting an agent, it was like this eye-opening experience where they're like, so what are you working on? <laughs> and it's like, well, no, aren't you supposed to give me things? And they go, no, no, no. What are you doing? It's like, no. Oh. Right. Yeah, you, have to, you, have to generate, you have to generate stuff, especially unless you're the top, top, top of the of the heap you always have to be generating your own stuff finding people to work with finding writers finding you know actors that you want to do stuff with you always have to be creating your own things no matter what level you're on i mean even even the top people i mean they you always hear about them starting their own production companies because they want to make their own stuff i mean you always have to be making your own stuff no matter what level you're at yeah no totally i've always taken inspiration from ridley scott he's the fucking 
yeah. he's like a goddamn machine. And, uh, you know, besides being an amazing uh, force in the commercial business, uh, just in the feature film business, and you can see uh, how many things he has in development at, at, at the same time. It's just like, God damn. Yeah. Um, and it's, but, it's, uh, one of the things Karen has always uh, seemed to be uh, sending us um, links to is articles about all the failed you know, films or TV shows. TV shows especially are, are pretty amazing how many failed TV shows there are with directors like Fincher and, you know, you name it, you know, there's a ton of just pilots that didn't get picked up with big actors, with big directors. And I think that that's just important to look at, you know, whether you're starting out or at any stage is just to see that really Scott has failed a lot. You know, he's even had a string of crappy movies, whereas (laughs) I I would put him at the, you know, Blade Runner, is one of my favorite movies. Alien, another, you know, it's like I love a lot of his work, even even the the, the ones that are pretty much derided. But I think it's just awesome to see that he's just yeah, he's putting it out there. He's failing, and um, you just got to keep press, pressing forward. Did you guys hear? Uh, speaking of that, have you guys heard the story about his I Am Legend movie? No. Oh. Okay. So let's derail for a second here. Let's get a little nerdy. Uh, so I Am Legend with Will Smith was originally Omega Man, which was originally Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. Old black and white movie. Amazing movie. I don't know if you guys have seen it. No, I haven't seen it. Really cool. So that movie's been remade a bunch of times. Now, we're talking about, for really Scott's career, we're talking about the G.I. Jane pre-Gladiator era. And apparently he got his hands on that property and he was going to do his own version of I Am Legend. And you will never guess who he's going to cast in that movie. It was fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's just get right to it. So it's going to be Ridley Scott and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And supposedly the script had 45 minutes before Arnold even says a line of dialogue in it. Uh, and it was supposed to be his epic. It was supposed to be his like post-apocalyptic epic. And there's like a bunch of concept arts kicking around. Um, but I had just recently heard that this year and I was like, why? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> why was that not made? It's like perfect. You know? Yeah, it, fucking awesome. Oh my Lord. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's, that's a great story. I mean, cause that there's tons of those kind of stories around that. It's the what ifs and the, how could that not have happened? I mean, there's, there's like hundreds of those. And like, we all feel like all we're seeing is the, is the ones that, um, that are even tried. I mean, there's so many that are, that are, that are made that they don't even come out. So it's, uh, yeah, this is that you have to be ready to keep on pushing and failing and uh, not taking that as a, as a, as the way to stop you from, from continuing. It's comforting too. It's actually really comforting to know that because then yeah. you, you understand yeah. that you're going through the same thing that your idols are going through and you're like, okay, so this is kind of the job. I might've said this on a prior episode, but I felt that way when I was directing and I was on set for one of the shorts. I think it was 12 cam. I was on set for that and I had like this huge uh, cast and uh, it was a period piece and I'm dealing with this set and it was like day one and it was just not going right. It was not going right. The crew was trying to figure itself out. The The sets weren't being built the way I wanted to be built. And you have one of those moments, I'm sure you guys have had these before, where it's like a meltdown moment internally where you're like, fuck, fuck, like, I'm doing this. This is my fault. This is all my shit. And I remember going home completely defeated. 
And uh, luckily, I just surfed YouTube. I just went through YouTube, and I'm like, I got, I got to listen to interviews from other directors. And I, I went through, and I found all these clips of like Fincher and, and Ridley Scott and, and James Cameron and all these guys that we grow up idolizing. And they're all sitting there, and they're like, every every first day sucks. And you just hear them say that, like every yeah. first day sucks. It's all about this thing. And I remember just sitting there going. Oh, 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 okay. So if he has a shitty first day and I'm having a shitty first day, that doesn't mean I'm not doing my job right. Okay, that's cool. And then I had a further revelation on it and I go, this is the job. Like dealing with shitty days is the job. The job isn't necessarily sitting on set and going like, do it again. Or can you do that slower, please? You know what I mean? The job is processing all of this shit um, and, and guiding the ship. Uh, and it was incredibly comforting for me. And I remember I went, I went to day two and I'm like, I'm doing it right, man. Let's fucking kill it. You know, and it was like a huge revelation for me to feel that. Yeah, I, I've, I think that the funny thing is, is Becky was actually a, a really, really tough shoot. There was a lot of um, things that we had to overcome. But like, like you say, that's part of the job. Um, but so it's it's crazy when you think of like, OK, Right now, you know, if you hadn't done a feature, you'd be like, oh, I just want to be able to make a feature. And then you actually get on set and like you're saying, you have a tough day or there's a lot of problems or there's issues you need to overcome. And so you're driving to set at, you know, five in the morning and you're like, oh my God, here we go again. <laughs> but you just got to switch your mind and be like, you know what? Th this is the job we signed up for and problem solving is the job. So all right, let's go. You know, we're, we're going to, we got a good team and we're going to go in there and, and figure it out. But you do, it, it's like the selling and like the other parts of the job and the process, like, you know, your, webs, your podcast is about is that even when you're doing what you think you want to do, it can be really tough. So yeah. you really have to make sure your mind is in the right place and, and you're not letting all the challenges overwhelm you. And you just kind of look at it like, okay, <laughs> uh, these challenges are just, this is what I signed up for. And it's awesome, actually. Yeah, right? Because then you feel like there's that weight that's taken off your shoulders because a big part of what we're dealing with all the time, especially when we don't have a lot of experience, when we start out, is that insecurity. Because there isn't really, like you go to film school, but you, you, there isn't really a place where they teach you how to be a director, for real. You know what I mean? And and when you're when you're pitching something, it's all in theory. It's, and, and in the beginning, you're usually doing a lot of bullshit where it's like, can you, can you direct, you know, uh, a team of salty fucking gaffers and grips to fucking do the lighting? Yeah, I've done that before. You have no idea how to do that shit. And you get into the position and you sort of figure out how to do it. And so there's a lot of insecurities, I think, um, with directors. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy having conversations with you guys because... As a director, it's very rare that you're able to talk with other directors and say, hey, do you guys feel this way? And have you done this before? And there have been a few occasions where I've been invited on sets. I was able to go hang out with the Farley brothers where they did two movies. And Peter was so fucking welcoming to me and actually gave me a headset and let me like follow him around all day and like watch wow. how he did his job. And I was like, man, this is such a fucking special moment because... There's so much insecurity with directors, even at that level, where they're like, who's this other director? Why is he on my fucking set? Like, what's he looking mm -hmm. at? What's he, what's he taking? Um, and so I appreciate, I'm on a little fucking rant here, but I appreciate you guys being on the show to share this stuff because I think it's really important that we kind of kibosh that insecurity 
Because if, if I had that kibosh 10 years ago, the advancement would have been so much quicker for me, I think. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you guys oh, could definitely. I mean, I think okay. we talk about it a lot because we're a directing duo um, that we have a little bit more support than a lot of directors, whereas a lot of times the director is just out there and there's you know, however many people on set, usually over, you know, 20, 30 people all asking questions and, um, and then producers, you know, questioning your, your decisions or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, that we have, um, each other to kind of, um, support, you know, any decisions that we make or, or bounce things off of. I think even, even just that, that element of, you know, you have producers, you have cinematographers, you have actors, but uh, that you bounce stuff off of creatively and, and you trust them. That's why you've decided to work with with all those people. But there's a different level of trust that, say, Carrie and I have. And, and you know, like you're saying, with the we usually have an earpiece and a, a, um, like a contact so we can communicate uh, privately <laughs> without, you know, you know, whether we disagree on something or you know, just want some feedback, we can kind of do it discreetly and, and get, get some feedback that most directors don't have the, you know, the chance to. So, so the message is get a friend and direct together. They <laughs> <laughs> got two of you to fight the, fight the battles. <laughs> well, I, I could see that working because I, I used to co-direct years ago on a bunch of stuff too. And I think it, it's like a marriage to a certain extent. As long as you guys are... Uh, growing together and as long as you guys are experiencing the same things together and you share that vision and that if that can stay for a period of time then I think that's really a a smart move Um, but uh, like and it's it's weird too because most of the time when I see uh, co-directors that seem to be able to really kill it they're they're usually brothers they were born together they share blood or something so um, but have you guys like, what is what are the rules for you guys? Do you guys split duties? Like, how do you guys make the uh, sharing the position of the general work? Yeah, we're starting to we we've, we've evolved over time. Um, Cooties, we kind of did everything together. Um, Bushwick, we divided scenes together because they're the big long scenes. So we actually divided like you take this ten minute scene and then you take right. this seven minute scene. We did it that way. Um, now we're doing it where we actually uh, one of us will lead a project and the other one will kind of be the support. So John led on Becky. Um, so I kind of, I was a support for him, you know, at, at the monitor and John was more with the onset and we would, as John said, we'd have these contacts and we'd, I'd be able to kind of look at the big monitor while John had his, his small monitor with him. We could really kind of u- utilize both of our, our eyes to, you know, be right there in the thick of things and to really see the full frame and be able to point out things. And um, that's how we're kind of moving forward with things is one of us leads one while the other one supports and also helps us where we can always have something going on in the background, like while one movie's going or a commercial, while one commercial's going, we can have something else kind of either pitching on while the other one's happening. So um, yeah, we've kind of utilized that in that way. Smart. That's very smart. Because oftentimes, because when when I was co-directing back in the day, we used to run into a bunch of uh, issues with that with commercials. Like one, it was always like payment stuff. So at a certain point, like we would get, we wouldn't get jobs because they're like, ah, there are two of you, you know, we, they really don't want to deal with the payment for two of you. And it's like, all right, are we splitting the payment for one for this fucking thing? Like, how does that work? Uh, and that was a thing with us for quite some time. And then at the end of the day, there needs to be that leadership, that command that runs the ship. And so if, 
it makes sense if you're letting someone sort of take the point on the set because I think oftentimes there could be levels of confusion. I've heard co-directors dealing with talent that will quietly go to each director and be like, what about this? And then they go to the other director and be like, what about this? You know what I mean? <laughs> so they had to deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we learned about Cooties is that you really, it helps to have that one person be the, because even, even like smaller things like on, you know, with props, you know, the people asking, you know, do you want this prop over here? And one of us say yes. Kind of like just, you know, saying, yeah, that, 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 um, that cup is good on that, on that desk over there. And then they'll ask the other director and say, oh, well, move it. And then that will kind of create chaos. So we, we've kind of felt like let's have the one be the lead and the other one be that kind of support with the things that, that are needed. Yeah. It's like, uh, like an Uber uh, assistant director who um, is able to, you know, we're, you know, we're together and we have that, that, um, that creative uh, combination of things. We can really help each other that way. And, and there's just uh, there's so many little decisions that need to be made quickly on set, you know, like moving the cup or whatever, that I think we are both on the same page um, with the bigger, broader strokes. So it's just stupid to kind of get in the weeds unless, you know, if moving that cup is going to affect something else or is a bigger plot point. I think now the way we do it is that, you know, if Kerry's back at the monitor, he'd be like, wait a sec, John, I think we'd need that cup over there. And here it is. Here's the reason why, rather than, you know, creating chaos on the set. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we can kind of make sure that we're, you know, moving towards the right direction together um, while keeping everything flowing uh, in a good way. Smart. Well, whatever you guys are doing, it seems like it's working really well. So that's, that's fucking great, dude. And it's, it's always fascinating to see how other directors do their stuff. I really enjoy it. Um, well, the other thing to get into, which I I haven't talked about on the show yet, really, you guys have been premiering your, uh, features at festivals. Like, has, has that been sort of the, the, uh, the business plan with these features in general? Like, are you making these films for festival deadlines to premiere, to either get the, uh, distribution from it or, 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 uh, foreign sales from it? Is that the goal? I mean, it, it's varied a little bit for each one. I mean, Cooties was we knew the we knew the deadline for Sundance, so we actually we knew we were going to submit to them. And um, we did. We uh, we also had Lionsgate on set um, while we we're filming, and you know they so they were around. They didn't they didn't buy it until Sundance, but mm. um, they were, at least were aware of it. Um, and then for Bushwick XYZs, like they're the masters of of um, of sales movies and getting like. Um, these kind of uh, challenging movies into the right people. And so they were connecting with people while we were making it. Um, and then it was fine. It was sold at Sundance. Um, and then Becky, uh, uh, that was, they had, distri- we had distribution um, kind of set up beforehand because again, of, of our, of our track uh, record and then having Kevin James and Lula Wilson and, Kev- and Joel McHale on um, so yeah, it's it's been a little bit different for each one. It wasn't as dependent on the on the festivals, but it helped. The festivals helped a lot because it what they did was it got attention um, to kind of launch the film, and it made the buyers feel like okay, that's this is it kind of put the stamp of approval on the films, and it helped um, make that happen that way. What's a what's okay? So what's like a Sundance premiere like with a feature? Is it, it so that night? or that day whenever it premieres for you guys is it like high stress like what walk us through it walk us through it what's it like to have a premiere it, it really is the best thing ever i mean it, it lives up to the hype of 
of all your dreams in terms of that kind of magical feeling. And we've done it now, you know, two times with our first two films. And then we, we kind of missed out on it with Becky at Tribeca. But it, it, so we were actually really looking forward to that because it is like that, that, um, cause you, what you do is you feel like, cause you get so many people who have worked on the film all together. Like you have you know, a lot of the cast and crew all come for those kind of things. You have the producers you've been working with on this for years mm-hmm. and you all kind of get the, sit there and and watch it and it feels like um it feels like it's it's the culmination of something but you also know what we've learned is that that's great that one night but that is almost it's not the halfway point but it's almost the halfway point of your film because then there's the promotion of the film and then it coming out and that's a whole other side of it that you as filmmakers you don't think about as much, but, um, yeah, that, that night is still, it is, it is that it is a magical feeling. And it, um, I, I wouldn't poo poo it at all. Like it, it is something we should all, it is something to kind of like fight for and to try to make happen at least once in your life. And, and just to through. throw in there, what, what happened with, yeah. tri- with, uh, Becky and Tribeca was Tribeca got canceled, you know, right after, you know, <laughs> South by Southwest got canceled. So we were, we, you know, we got in, you know, just getting into these festivals is not a given, even if you have stars or, you know, a, a great movie, you know, we know a lot of uh, great filmmakers who have submitted and we're like, Oh, you know, no problem. You're going to get in and then they don't get in. So uh, getting in any of these festivals is in itself, I think such a, such a triumph of, of, um, will, you know, that you've, actually made the film which we all know is really hard but to actually get it into um Sundance, Tribeca, South by any of these great film festivals is really a triumph um so <laughs> to have you know I know a, a bunch of filmmakers that uh, must just have been crying you know in the end it's like just a, a, another casualty of this pandemic but um it is sad that you know after spending years that uh you aren't able yeah. to share it and I think that's the the best part of you know, we've talked a lot about the process, but there is something so satisfying about, you know, you do a commercial, it goes out, maybe is on TV or on YouTube or whatever. You never get to see any reaction, but to be sitting in an audience of maybe a few hundred people and to hear them kind of clap and ooh and ah and laugh at the right time or, (laughs) you know, scream at the right time, you know, that's the best thing about genre too, is that you really do get that audience visceral reaction um, as opposed to maybe like a drama where it's like, I guess you could gauge the reaction is by how quiet they are. If, you know, <laughs> they're all sitting in their seats. Um, but it's, I, I, it is, it is something, uh, you know, that's special, that, that feeling of just hearing everybody clap, um, at something that you've worked so hard at. That is, it is, I it think, is I, profound. I think we're all going to have to adjust our, our expectations in the future where, you know, obviously theaters are going to be a little bit less um, involved mm-hmm. with, with movies and especially on the, the smaller films and you know, streaming will be a lot bigger part of all of our lives. And so that's why we have to, you have to love the process and not be, be waiting for that one moment in a theater, even though it is, it is a great feeling. And we all have to kind of think about um, why we want to do it and not, not be doing it just because of that, that, uh, that festival premiere. Well, yeah. I mean, cause even, even before we get to that, <laughs> slightly depressing part of our lives. <laughs> um, the, even if you were just doing it for, for being at that screening, if you're doing what, how many years, you know, how many years did it take you guys to get Bushwick up and running? What was that like? 
It was six, I think six, seven years, yeah. Jesus. So six and seven years to get that thing up and running. And if your main goal is to just stand in front of that audience or <laughs> sit in there. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely not saying that was the main goal. In fact, every time it happens, it's kind of like a surprise. And it's just, uh, you know, it's it's great. It's great to get a get get that kind of reaction and, and to feel that, but I definitely don't think that should be anybody's main goal, <laughs> right? Because right, yeah. then you're you're there and you're like, wow, this is great, and then it's done, it's gone. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, Fuck, seven years. <laughs> yeah, totally right. <laughs> yeah, to have you know to have someone tweet out, oh, it sucked. You yeah, know, I which, thought it was okay. Which you get a lot of, and it's like, <laughs> oh, great, thanks, thanks for the review, buddy. <laughs> Headed to the gun store. That's where I'm going next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so you mentioned that when you guys were at that point, when you're screening, you're about halfway there. Uh, what's the process? What's the next step for you guys? You get into the promotions of the film and the advertising of the film. Like how, what, like there's a whole second half to this. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, it gets, it's, it's, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the broad outline is that you have to, um, uh, yeah, even with these indie films, usually you even do a little bit of um, tweaking after the festivals because you're rushing to get it into the festivals. So you kind of you can do a little bit of tweaking afterwards, and it depends on the the person who buys it. They also can have some input on making some changes on mm-hmm. some things, so that can happen. And then you have to get into um, you know putting together a trailer or trailers, um, and picking a time of when that's going to be when the movie's going to come out. Um, and then you have to, you know, work with the financiers slash studio slash producers to um, get the movie into the right uh, places and get it seen in the right way. Um, and that's that's all, you know, at least in our experience, it's been a collaboration so far in a good way, um, where we've been involved with the with the with the marketing part of it and to kind of see how those things can come together. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it's it's something that um, is. Marketing of a movie is is such a huge. We've learned like such a huge um, part of how it can be successful or not. Um, from the poster, from the fonts on the poster to the to the way the trailers are are edited together. Um, you know, we feel like it's something we're gonna we're gonna try to get even more control over that as we go along because we know that that's it's a it's a big way of how something's perceived. Um, but that first thing you see from a movie can really um, can really make you feel a certain way about a movie. So um, I think. And, and I think, yeah, go ahead, John. Oh, oh, just you know, I think Carrie, Carrie is is what I love about him is he's putting a, a he's the way he's describing that process is uh, a, you know the, it's a very positive view of it because I think at times there have been battles you know where mm-hmm. even though we're involved with the process like he said I I still think like everything at every step of the the process with with making a movie you have to be willing to fight for what you believe in so when the companies you know say that we're involved and they show us a trailer and we absolutely don't like it we can't just be like okay you know you have to fight and then you you communicate that and it, you know it can it came down to that we had to edit it ourselves but then fighting you know so like Kerry put it in a better way where he was like saying it's, it's collaborative where I'm saying fight. <laughs> I think Kerry's, Kerry's perspective is much better. Um, but I'm just saying that you, you know, you just have to stick up for what you believe in. And then I think a lot of times, especially in the cases that we found is that we have been able to kind of push what we think is best through 
um, even though it might have taken more work and, and really sticking to your guns. Um, another example of that is that they did some posters um, and they asked for our input on it. And, you know, we coming as designers, we have very specific points of view. And in the end, we work with some of our own designers to, to, to augment some of the stuff that they did. Um, but we still, you know, we were part of the process, but in the end there's marketing needs and, and, you know, you have to have the stars on the poster at, at least at this level. Sure. Um, so, um, even though we were, it was collaborative, there was still a lot of work to be done. And I think that that can't be overlooked in terms of the process is that, yeah, you're, you, the minute you hit, you know, uh, enter on that, la- the final cut. Um, you still have a lot of work to do. I would say months of work, and um, and it's not just um, oh, you know, I, I was thinking of my poster was going to have this, you know, cool fist on it, and there, you know, that's it, and there wouldn't be any stars on the poster or all the stars, you know, you know, for like example, cooties, we had the eight stars, so they all had to be on the official poster as opposed <laughs> to the original poster that was this uh, like. A skeleton holding a lollipop, which we absolutely loved. Um, but you know, there's marketing needs, and you know, in the end, as the filmmaker, you also have to. You can't be so ignorant and uh, stupid to think that the the lollipop with the skull hand is going to sell the most. You know, right. the most tickets and most views. So um, even though it's a creative, um, you know, battle, quote unquote battle. Um, you still have to be smart about it and you still have to listen to the marketing teams because in the end, I, you know, I think their job is to get the movie sold. And in the end, that's kind of what you want too. Yeah. Right. Now it's fascinating. And I would assume that you guys, you know, being from the commercial world and I kind of know this from the commercial world too, the power of having a team that is sort of weeding its way through all the fickle shit that's going on at that moment, as far as marketing is concerned and, um, I, you know, I grew up loving, um, and I wonder how you guys feel about this. I grew up loving the old school and, um, illustrated posters and mm-hmm. there's been this resurgence of those again recently. And I think that's because of Mondo and all like these really cool, uh, reissues that are out there. Like, do you guys, what is the, what is the perfect movie poster in your mind? Well, just, I think you're right. I mean, there is a resurgence in, in those kind of movie posters. I think what's happening is that um, a lot of movies have multiple um, uh, kind of uh, different versions of their poster. And there's like the official version, and then there's the Mondo version, and then there's the, the teaser version. And that's where you kind of get all those kind of really um, unique designs. And so that's what we did with, uh, with Becky as well. But uh, yeah, there's... There's some like I, I love looking at AMP posters um, Instagram and they have like they've all these great artists kind of making their own takes on on both classic films and new films um, each day and it's it's pretty amazing how the how films can inspire these artists to see things in, in films that we haven't seen before I love how when they see a detail and they kind of amplify it on a poster um, that kind of makes it stand out so uh, yeah it's the poster design world is um, is, is really really is really inspiring right now. It is right as far yeah. as like as far as the art is concerned. It's so amazing. Like for for both my short films, I reached out to artists to actually design that stuff. And then of course you also do posters that put the cast on there. But I didn't have any cast that meant anything as far as that's concerned. So it was more about just getting illustrations and making it look as cool as possible. And and this I I love this whole new culture 
not really new, but the resurgence of this culture that's like collectibles and, and people are like, I, I want to buy the posters and I want the vinyl, like all the vinyl releases for stuff are mm-hmm. really cool now, especially in this genre, you know? Yeah. And our last one, Becky, she has, and she has a very uh, distinct um, wardrobe. She has these, these, uh, these fox ears that she wears on her head and she has these, these uh, black and yellow striped shirt. And so she's, she became this almost iconic character and so what we've had is which is really fun is a lot of um artists have just drawn her and then posting like their artists without us even asking and <laughs> she's become sort of this horror icon um in a way in a very short amount of time and if you can do something like that it's been pretty special to watch that happen yeah i, I mean you know, we were saying earlier that you can very easily become trapped in a genre, but I really love, I love this genre and I feel like, you know, we're playing in the same genre. Um, and I really love the fact that this genre, well, prior to COVID, I really love the fact that this genre was still pretty much a theater going audience genre. It's like one of the last, mm-hmm. other than, you know, whether it, like we can strap on, you know, superhero capes and shit and, you know, spend like 160 fucking million dollars or whatever the hell it is but you know the idea that we can make movies in this genre for like two million sometimes under two million and still fill us fill theaters all over the place and still make a really good return on that stuff is, is exciting that's why i love horror that's why i love sci-fi horror all that sort of stuff no it is it is it is still that that visceral feeling that you get um with watching it with people whether it's going to be you know, 200 people in the theater, or if you get a bunch of friends over to your house and watch it, like you still will have, it is, we're, we're playing in the, in a genre where you get reactions. And I think that's, and it does bring people together, whether it's smaller group, big groups. And I think that that will be the way that this, these kind of films continue to thrive is that it's still a way to bring people together in big or small um, groups. And, yeah. and we were lucky with, um, because of the, you know, well, not lucky, but, um, lucky in the sense that our our movie got shown in drive-ins and became this kind of resurgence of drive-in go, drive-in theater going, mm-hmm. um, which you know it pretty much died out. But really, it was the great way to see a movie with other people during the pandemic. Um, so there was this cool thing that happened uh, upon our release where we were number one in the in the country with a you know a tiny little uh, genre movie, but because you know it was the only movie theaters that were open were, were drive-ins. Mm-hmm. I'm, part of me wants, and you know, you can never time these things, but I really wish I could time a film to come out like right when it's safe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause I think that we're all, we've all been sort of quarantined imprisoned, or whatever you want to call it for so long. And I know that uh, if and when they can ever release a vaccine or if, and when there's a, a point where we can, sort of sigh a little bit of a sigh of relief there's there's going to be a fucking party you know what I mean? like, there's going to be a global fucking party and you you want to get back and i know so many people that i talk to that are like as soon as it's fucking safe i want to go back to the movies i want to go back and sit in the mm-hmm. cinema and experience it with people because movies just feel different when you watch it in a room full of fucking strangers and I, i'm not shitting on streaming services by any means but it, it's just a completely different viewing experience it's like the difference between listening to music on spotify and listening to music on vinyl and it it isn't the quality because you know digital music sounds amazing it can sound perfect but it's the it's the 
It's the act of doing so. It's the act. Well, I'll, I'll raise you one. It's like listening to music at home versus a concert, yeah. which we haven't we haven't gone to either. And you know, you just can't even compare that feeling of uh, being dancing and you know really feeling um, it uh, on that bigger stage. So, yeah, I agree. One of the one of the other things that we're missing is. Um, you know, I used to, with my, my little kids, I used to watch trailers, you know, that'd be like part of mm-hmm. our nightly routine is we'd check all the cool new movies that are coming out, um, you know, at least once a week. And, you know, it's like the, the just complete lack of good trailers that has been oh, coming out lately. Yeah, is, you know, maybe you get like one every, you know, few weeks and, but it's like, I keep going back and being like, oh man, like, you know, we're just, there's just not, you know a lot of movies that are going to be coming out in the next few months. Well, okay, uh, let me uh, let me ask you this. What are you guys fucking excited about? Are there any flicks coming out that you guys are pumped about? Oh, Mank by Fincher. That that's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to I I've been reading about the whole process of that and it's you know written with his father um and the the meticulous way they've made that film. It's whether I love it or hate it the film, I just know I'm going to it's going to be such a interesting thing to look at um because Fincher's is such a great way of, he has such a good process of making things. So I'm very excited for that one. Um, but I mean, just, I want to just do one little counter argument to the, to the <laughs> theater versus home thing is that, um, if, I mean, if I think back to some of the films that I loved as a kid, it, a lot of it are, a lot of the films are ones I saw either on TV or watching a bunch of times on VHS. Um, and you know, there are the, there's a film like there's like ET, which I remember seeing in theaters. But um, most of my like favorite films were things I watched at home a lot, and I feel like um, the experience of watching it in a theater is obviously better than at home. But I some of my I think the the way you fell feel the way you uh, fall in love with films is a lot of it by yourself rewatching and rewatching. And so I think there's going to be opportunities for people to. Um, to get some of those films and see them very quickly. Um, and I, there's a story from, you know, Joel Cohen says where blood simple was a failure at the box, you know, in theaters and it wasn't really, um, didn't, wasn't successful until it came out on VHS. And that's when people actually watched it. And there's lots of stories of that, of, of going in theaters at first, not catching on and, and it kind of like really catching on when it, when people can watch it at home. I think there's gonna be more and more of that coming up. So it's a good it's a good point. I mean, it's true. A lot of the movies that I fucking really love, I beat the shit out of my old VHS tapes with them. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the slight counter argument to that is, I wonder if it's going to be, I wonder if it's the same thing. And a lot of the younger audience write to me and let me know if you, if, if you feel this way. But I wonder if it's the same thing when you have unlimited fucking options. You know what I mean? As opposed to like when I was a kid, I wore the shit out of that VHS tape of Predator because it was one of six on my shelf <laughs> that, I, that I was like, oh, I want to watch Predator again. I put Predator in and just wear that out. And even back when you, you think about uh, buying music, whether you bought a CD or, or even prior to that gasp, you know, when you bought a cassette tape, um, you would save up your money if maybe once a week or twice a month you'd go buy two or three albums and those albums would literally stay in my car player for uh, a month without being pulled out. So I wonder if it's the same thing because you, we have such a, a plethora of, inter, of, of content right now and algorithms that are making the decisions on what we should be watching. Do you think it's the same thing or, or am I just being a cynical prick? <laughs> well, I think, 
I just think people people become obsessed with things still. Um, I think there's, there's definitely that that feeling of um, something being disposable, and you can like you can quickly uh, jump off of it, and you know, you know, you used to have to either get up and you know press you know eject or stop something, and now you can just kind of click very easily. But I still see people becoming obsessed with certain movies or TV shows and rewatching them over and over again and talking about them. So um, I think it still has some of that impact. Um, but yeah, I would love to, you know, obviously you can, you'd love to hear from the source of, of people of what they actually are seeing. But I think also something like Letterboxd is showing that um, people are becoming more and more obsessed and like, and if they want to find the things that are not as easily accessible or the ones that are a little bit more challenging and, and, and people write about it. You know, we never wrote about films when we were young. I mean, I, there are people on Letterboxd who they say they're aged and they're like, they're so young and they're writing about films in ways that are like, that we've never saw before. So I think the, the movie literacy has really risen um, over time. And I feel like we're seeing just more obsessive people about things that, um, that I'm really kind of uh, wowed by uh, at certain ages of people. That's really comforting, actually. <laughs> it is. It's really comforting to think that way. And I, and you're not wrong, you know, because you look at films like Mandy and Jesus. Like I just saw that they're going to be re- releasing that in uh, in uh, drive-ins again. Yeah, yeah. And that's 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 a testament to something where it's like this crazy movie and people just kind of obsessed about it, and now they're going to want to see it again. So it's um, I think that's that's a cool way to to see a film. Yeah. Fucking a man. Well, where are we at? We're doing okay. How are you guys doing on time? You guys all right? You got a schedule? Uh, I mean, I have I've some things to do, but... It, <laughs> Let's cool. spend seven hours. No, <laughs> no just checking in, making sure I wasn't running. We're, we're just about done. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll, I'll follow up, though, with what we were talking about before. Is two movies that I'm dying to see, which were supposed to come out already, that didn't, is um, The Quiet Place 2, mm-hmm. because I just love the first one. Um, and then Dune, um, oh you know, Denis Villeneuve, I'm, I'm like a Denis Villeneuve crackhead. I, I just like eat up anything he does. He can and do I no just, fucking wrong, man. He can do no wrong. With right. He's, he's out of control. And, you know, the, with the trail, you know, that talk about a trailer that I've watched over and over again, just so excited for that. Um, I, I, you know, among, among other movies that have been canceled or postponed, uh, this year, I, I think those two are just really um, just dying to see them. I, Carrie, oh, Carrie oh. was going to go see Quiet Place too, like the right. It was about to come yeah. out that week, and it got canceled that <laughs> that week. I, I bought this special like uh, AMC ticket where you could watch both of them in a row. <laughs> and I was so excited to kind of go because I hadn't seen the first one in theaters. Stupidly, because I didn't get that experience of that quiet kind of thing, and I was so excited for it. And then I kept one of my worst things was like oh my come on can this covid kind of like get going so i can like <laughs> see, see quiet place that was what i was so worried about and then obviously it got really bad and you know turned into a whole different thing but like yeah that was i was really dying to see it see there's a great a uh, great example of a movie that is so much better in the movie theater yeah you know because yeah, yeah seeing that with the a quiet audience where you know you hear like someone taking a bite of popcorn and you jump and <laughs> you're um, like shut up shut up shut up <laughs> you look at them like please don't make any noise because they're gonna hear us there, there, there was this really great energy that happened in theaters with when i went and saw it too man where like the slightest noise and you're just looking at people like what are you doing 
Stop making yeah. noise. Yeah. It's so you know, cool. Do we know when that's coming out? When Dune's coming out next Christmas, right? They move the whole year? Yeah, you know no. I, I had I had uh, Greg Fraser on the show, the DP. So him and I talked a little bit off air about Dune. Uh, and uh, I can't fucking wait, dude. I, that, that movie's <laughs> going to be so fucking good. Um, but uh, yeah, they pushed that until like next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, next, next Christmas, I think. Yeah. And then Place is like, in, they're saying next April, but I think these, this is all very dependent on, you know, where where theater openings are, or if the, theaters are even around. Yeah, yeah, because I haven't, I haven't, because we've been, you know, out here in Los Angeles, it's been kind of quarantined mostly. I didn't get a chance to see Tenant. I wanted to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still kind of pumped. I mean, I'm such a sucker for the James Bond movies, and... Uh, mm-hmm. I was excited for this new one. And then as far as indie stuff comes out, I'm pumped about SpectreVision's new one. I'm pumped about Arc Enemy. That yeah, one, that, was, that looks amazing. Yeah, that looks really fucking rad. Um, there was like one other one. That we a, I would say that SpectreVision knows how to make a good poster. Yeah. They, they have all, you know, from the Cooties um, poster we did with, they did for, you know, um, for Cooties to, you know, pretty much all their posters are, are pretty great. So. Um, yeah, I don't know cool. if they worked on that one for. Um, the, there's like a, I don't know if it's a Mondo one, but there's a, a new poster that just came out for, um, for that movie, and it, um, yeah, it looks really cool. Yeah, the, the artist that did the stuff for Mandy too. I forget his name, but I follow him on Instagram. He's fucking amazing, yeah. and all his like poster stuff is phenomenal. Yeah, the dudes from SpectreVision. I've been talking to those guys for a while, and we could talk off here about that. <laughs> Sorry, audience. Um, but uh, yeah, they they know what the fuck they're doing as far as like cult audiences are concerned. Um, yeah. They do really really exciting stuff as far as the genre is concerned, and they're they're just general. I don't know if you guys felt this way, but their general taste for horror, like especially Elijah's taste for horror, is just impeccable. I think he does such a good job on it. So, oh yeah. yeah, definitely. It's um, and it, it's something that we we like that that they're not doing anything safe. You know, they continue to really push the limits and and try different different things that I don't think most people are are you know they have the the balls to try. So you know, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, well, dude, because a lot of people don't realize that the horror genre has changed a lot. I mean, it's changed a lot since the 70s, obviously, and since the 80s, even, um, and even the 90s, like, the horror genre became, like, one of the last places that you could make, if you weren't doing, like, mega, mega blockbusters, this was a place that you could make uh, an insane uh, return on it on an investment. You know, you look at stuff like Paranormal Activity and how much money that fucking movie made, mm-hmm. you look at all these things, and, the, and suddenly this genre became a target for a lot of people looking to make cash. And so I feel, that, and I've met a bunch of people that are trying to make horror movies and different production companies that are trying to do horror movies. And you talk to them and you're like, you're not really a fucking horror fan. And you can, <laughs> you can smell them out immediately where you're just looking at them going, so, so what do you want, like another boat or something? Like what the fuck, what the, why the fuck are you asking about making a movie with us? You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so to see someone or see a group like SpectreVision and A24 does a lot of it, um, and like even uh, MGM, like Orion, the people over at Orion are trying to do a lot of that stuff. They definitely have a love for horror and the the execs that are working there have a love for fucking horror and they want to make movies that are genuinely scary. And it kind of blows my mind. My, my 
writing partner, Will Simmons, and I have been talking about it. And he, I'm not allowed to talk about stuff on air, but he's working on a couple of larger scripts. And he was telling me about the rules, <laughs> the rules for writing for specific studios and words that you're allowed to use and words that you're not allowed to use when writing a horror film. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, these, these guys don't give a fuck about horror. This isn't about horror. This is about that return and, and, and playing it incredibly safe. Um, and so I don't know if you guys have experienced that at all. I know I'm treading on dangerous territory by saying those things on air, but you know, uh, it's kind of the reality of it. You know, we haven't, I don't, have we experienced like that specific of like, don't use words, Carrie? No. Well, good. But you, you do have, you do have, you know, you do have comments and, and, um, you know, the people that are, are financing, you know, you know, should have their say, you know, they're, they're paying for it. Um, but like I said, it, it just comes down to, if you believe in, in your vision, you know, they are hiring you for your vision. So hopefully if, if you really believe in something, you can fight for it and, um, make sure that, um, you, you keep your vision. Um, but again, it's not always just a, a walk in the park. Well, yeah. And I think that's also the difference between being for hire and actually going in for, with a vision. You know what I mean? Like if you guys, when you guys write a movie or if I write a movie or I put together projects and I go in to sell that project, then it's kind of all packaged together in one way or another where it's like, what have you done before? This is your tone. This is your vibe. Got it. But then oftentimes what happens is in the interim, a lot of people that uh, don't have the next project teed up or they get the offers and the, the agents start to send them stuff and your agent is like, do me a favor, do this one because <laughs> we made nothing on the last one. So how about doing this one, you know, and then you're in that game where you don't necessarily have a vision, but you're for hire as that person. And then that world is completely different as far as like developing and, and, and the rules involved with that. I'll have to have some people on the show and we'll talk about that. But look, fellas, I've, I've held you up long enough. I appreciate uh, you both being on the show. I hope you had a good time. Um, and uh, I know that our fans are going to fucking dig it. And if you guys haven't seen their work, definitely go back, check it all out. Um, go watch Cooties. Uh, I can't wait to see Becky. Becky's on my list. So Becky's this week. Um, and I'm a big fan of Bushwick as well, fellas. And then uh, we'll have links to all your work below the episode. Definitely go check out all their stuff. The commercials are fantastic. And you guys seem to be really cool down to earth cats. Um, so like I said, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It was a great time. Great talking yeah. to you. It was a lot uh, of fun. And, and um, like we said, we're on our... I'm on Letterbox, so uh, if you um, you know watch our stuff, you know shoot us a shoot us a note or you know shoot us a note through our emails. Um, we we love hearing feedback and um, uh, always excited to talk to fans. So um, yeah, it was awesome talking to you. that's the episode uh i appreciate you guys listening uh i actually learned a lot you know it's it's always nice when you talk to another director that's got a good attitude on something that you have a shitty attitude on because <laughs> it makes you go yeah you know you're probably right 
you know, you're probably right about that. You know, you people at home are still fucking pumped to watch movies. Even if they're watching them on streaming services, you guys still get nerdy about all the classics, right? You guys like to repost about movies that you're the only one that has seen and your friends haven't seen yet. That still exists. And I, I love that that exists. And so, and those are the people that I want to make movies for. I want to make movies for you guys that are amped to find that alternate poster or fucking pumped to sign up for a pre-order on a on a vinyl pressing. And it's not necessarily to make money, but just to share art, to share the fact that we love all that nerdy shit. Like right now, when I finish this, I am about to go order from Waxworks the new John Carpenter pre-order that's coming out. It's like, what is it, Lost Volumes 3 or something like that? That's what it's called. I'm pumped, you know? So I'm right there with you guys. And that's what I love about this business. That's what I love about this industry is that we're offend- we're essentially feeding you nerds, <laughs> feeding us nerds. Um, and so I appreciate it. And I hope those of you listening uh, who are trying to get it into the business and trying to learn how to be a better director, I hope you guys found a couple of little nuggets in this episode because uh, I know there were some good ones in there um, that might give you the confidence that you need to start getting to the next level, start making your films into maybe you already have made a film and maybe it's uh, you learned a little bit something about how to like get it seen or the importance behind promoting it correctly you know and remember when we're at a certain level we're always looking up and we're always like this is going to be easier once I get an agent this is going to be easier once I make a feature I mean, we talked with Grant in a prior episode. He directed I Am Mother, and he was talking about how you do your first film, and then what? What is the next step? You know, you're back to square one again. And if we're always back to square one, then does that mean the square one is our job? Right? Is that our life? Is square one our life? Is this whole prep and waiting and all this that we spend, you know, a good 85% of our time doing? Maybe we should examine that and then decide if that's something that we want to deal with every day and try to find the thing that makes us happy while doing that stuff. I don't know. I'm ranting. I'm rambling. I'm going to end the episode, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as always, thank you so much for being here and I will see you next Tuesday.